listen to Sounds of Grace. This pre-recorded program is brought to you by the First Baptist Church of Independence. We'd like to invite you to attend our services. Sunday school for all ages at 10 o'clock a.m. Sunday worship service is 11 o'clock a.m. And Sunday evening service is 6 o'clock p.m. Midweek prayer and Bible studies at 7 o'clock p.m. If you believe what the Bible teaches, attend a church that teaches the Bible. Jesus with you, child of sorrow and of woe. It will joy and comfort give you. Take it wherever you go. Precious name, oh how sweet. Hope of earth and joy of heaven. Precious name, oh how sweet. Hope of earth and joy of heaven. Take the name of Jesus ever as a shield from every snare. If temptations round you gather, breathe that holy name in prayer. Precious name, oh how sweet. Hope of earth and joy of heaven. Precious name, oh how sweet, hope of earth and joy of heaven. At the name of Jesus bowing, falling prostrate at his feet. King of king in heaven will crown him when our journey is complete. Precious name. Oh, how sweet, hope of earth and joy of heaven. Precious name, oh, how sweet, hope of earth and joy of heaven. I passed by this psalm so many times, uh, I'll try to read it and then I'll come up with something else and... Uh, and before long, it, it's a, been a while, and here it pops up, and tonight we're going to get it tonight. A Psalm of Joy. Rejoice in the Lord, all ye righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. Praise the Lord with heart, sing unto him with palstry and an instrument of ten strings. Sing unto him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud noise, for the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathereth the water of the seas together as a heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake, and it was done. He commandeth, and it stood fast. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. 
The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looketh from heaven, he beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation he looked upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioned their hearts alike, considered all their works. There is no king save by the multitude of a host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. A horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our hearts shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be among us, upon us, according as we hope in thee. May the reading of the Lord's work be blessed. Let us have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we enter this hour of worship, Lord, we are grateful for thy words out of the scriptures, Lord. For a man divides his ways of the Lord and reading the scriptures every day, upholding thy name, learning more and more about you, Father, and more and more how to fear you and to walk with you, Father. We are truly blessed, Lord, and we are in a, a nation that has uh, somewhat rights, Lord, to where we can come and confess your name anytime, anywhere, in any place, Lord. May we be given opportunities to, to seek these situations out, Lord, and may we give them out of our heart to others that don't know Christ, Lord. May we be an example, Lord, of thy works upon the face of the earth, Father. May our light so shine before men. We are grateful, Father, for thy love. Walk with us as our... Hold hands with us, Lord. Let us rejoice in thy word. We we ask you, Father, to be with Brother Vince now as he uh, brings a message uh, this evening, Father, after the next song. And we ask you, Lord, to walk with him during that hour. And may our hearts also be open to thy word, Lord. Bless thy holy name. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's have another song, uh, and we need to turn to 203, song 203, and uh, let's see, I think we need to stand up on this one, how does that sound, stand up on this song, song 203,
cool tree, whosoever will. Whosoever heareth shout spread the blessed tidings all the world around. Tell the joyful news wherever man is found, whosoever will may come. Whosoever will, whosoever will, send the proclamation over vale and hill. Tis a loving Father calls a wanderer home. Whosoever will may come. Whosoever cometh need not delay. Now the door is open, enter while you may. Jesus is the truth, the only living way. Whosoever come, may come. Whosoever will, whosoever will, send the proclamation over bell and hill. Tis a loving Father calls a wanderer home. Whosoever will, may come. Whosoever will, the promise is secure. Whosoever will, forever must endure. Whosoever will, tis life forevermore. Whosoever will, may come. Whosoever will, whosoever will, send the proclamation over bell and hill. Tis a loving Father calls a wanderer home. Whosoever will may come. Be seated. Thank you, Brother Tim. Good evening to you. Hope that you've had a restful Lord's Day, perhaps. Uh, and so uh, tonight, Brother Vince will be uh, here in just a few moments bringing the text uh, to us, uh, preaching the Word of God to us. Um, and so I just simply want to draw your attention back to the bulletin just sort of as we look ahead. Uh, and, and brothers, let me just uh, remind you that uh, the 25th of this month, there's going to be something special planned for us and any guests that we bring on that Saturday morning. So uh, there'll be some more information that will be coming. Uh, and then we will resume our men's Bible study in July, um, Lord willing. Uh, and then uh, I, the, I guess uh, the, the, um, the two other things real quick I want to draw attention to. Uh, ladies fellowship coming up on the 14th at ruth walker's home at six and they'll leave uh, ladies you'll leave here if you're going to carpool at 5:45, and then june 17th is the meal and message at fairhaven mission so um that's uh um i think some uh, uh then you can you can take a look at the others so just highlight a few here for us uh, you can look and see what the others are so uh and then prayer requests i know we have uh, friends and family members neighbors co-workers uh, just who need to know the gospel they, they need to know the lord jesus christ and we want to pray not only pray for their salvation obviously we want to pray for their salvation but we do want to be faithful in giving away the gospel as we as we have opportunity uh, to to go and to share the gospel um, we also want to be in prayer for our sister churches, our, our own needs, uh, missionaries, uh, spiritual growth, finances, just, just uh, all sorts of things going on. We do want to remember, uh, though, uh, coming up, uh, uh, Brother Ron. Brother Ron will be leaving this Thursday and going to preach, uh, and then when he gets back, he'll go to Frankfurt and preach. So uh, he's going to have uh, um, some... Uh, uh, a lot of a lot of things going on here in the next couple of weeks so we want to be in prayer for him as he uh, as he is out among us uh, from among us for the next uh, next little bit 
Uh, and then we want to be in prayer for our, um, our leaders uh, as a nation. We also want to be in prayer for our homebound, our ill, and our bereaved. And so um, uh, we want to uh, just take some time and lift these to the Lord, being thankful that he hears us, being thankful that he is merciful to us and gracious to us. And so would you, uh, would you bow with me as we, as we pray together? Our merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, we are able to come only because of your good Son, Jesus, your, uh, your Savior that you sent into the world, our Savior, uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Lord, we give you the praise and the glory for all that you have done for us, all that you are doing for us, and all that you will do for us in Christ. But God, ultimately, we praise you because you are the God of all mercy, the God of all grace, the God of all um, just uh, uh, immense and unmatched um, love. And we praise you that that love is executed through your son, Jesus Christ. We'd ask now that uh, our attention would continue to be upon him, that you would help us to always keep our eyes focused upon Christ and that his name would be exalted and glorified. We pray uh, for Brother Vince as he comes in just a few moments. Help him to preach uh, with, uh, with your zeal, uh, your, your word. And for Brother Ron as he, as he goes and preaches over these next couple of, uh, uh, next little bit, next couple of weeks, we, we pray for him to have the strength that is necessary for the job and the task that is at hand. God, we thank you for allowing us to come together tonight. May your blessings rest upon your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sister, what was the name of that? What's the number of that number? Good evening. Tonight we'll be continuing our study in Ephesians that Pastor Tim opened up last week with chapter 1. What we're going to be doing is working through the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter by chapter. And then what we'll do is camp out in chapter 5 really pointing us to the roles that we have within the family, husbands, wives, children, and their parents, uh, even slaves, masters, just working through how we are to conduct ourselves within the household of God. And while we're in Ephesians chapter 5, we'll, we'll camp out and also look at other texts that really help us to better understand those truths. So if you will, turn to Ephesians 2 with me. And if you will, please stand for the reading of God's word, if you're physically able to do so. I'll be reading Ephesians chapter 2, and we will read it in its entirety. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast." 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, made by the flesh, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fit together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the goodness of the gospel that Paul is pointing us towards. We thank you that though we once were children of wrath, that in Christ that you have made us children of God. We thank you for the goodness of this gospel. We pray tonight that we would behold it more and more through the preaching of your word. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. In ancient antiquity, the Greeks, they coined a term, the seven wonders of the world. It was a list of the most remarkable man-made structures during that time, man-made creations. And on this list were things like the Great Pyramids in Giza, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, and relevant to our study tonight, the Temple of Artemis, or also known as Diana. It was a massive temple. It was made out of marble, and it's said to have been the size of a football field of pure marble. The, the Temple of Artemis was built in 550 B.C., before Christ, and would later be rebuilt in 323 B.C. after it was burned by fire. And they say that the second temple was even more magnificent than the first. And this is the backdrop as we read things like in Acts 19, where there's a riot that's formed in Ephesus because of Christianity's threat to the Ephesians' businesses of selling statues and religious icons for that temple. The gospel was taking root in Ephesus right under the steps of this so-called seven wonder of the world. This is the place that Paul is addressing as he pins this letter, the city where Paul calls upon Timothy to remain so that he can guard the church from false teaching. The same church where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16 that he had many adversaries. One of Paul's concerns for this church in particular is that they understood their new identity in Christ and that they would live it out. His letters to the Ephesians is structured much similarly to his other letters. Paul's letters, they, they tend to have a clear movement between what's called the indicative and the imperative mood. The imperative 
Those are the commands, the go do. This is how you ought to live. This is how you respond to this. The scripture is replete with commands on how we are to conduct ourselves as God's people. But these commands, they always flow out of the indicatives. An indicative is just the stating of a fact. So in Paul's theology, we see this as he states things like like the grandness of God, as he states facts so that we would behold our God more and more. And in his theology, he continues to use those indicatives to teach us truth, truth about ourselves so that we could understand our plight. And throughout Scripture, we see this, that moving from those indicatives to those imperatives, that in light of these truths, this is how we now ought to live. Those grand statements, they really drive home those truths on how we now respond. And that's so important in Christian theology that we understand that we are not trying to reform people's behaviors simply. That first, we are going after their hearts. That the gospel must take root in their heart before we try to change those behaviors. And last week in chapter 1, we really saw the glory of God in his saving work, that triune God at work in the lives of sinners. And Paul prays for them, that they would even have a greater understanding of that God. And so in Ephesians, Paul, he is pointing them back to their old identity, as we'll see tonight in our text. It's in an identity that's rooted in self-love and rebellion against God. And he does this in order to point them to their new realities in Christ. He's writing primarily to a Gentile audience, an audience that's been raised in the shadow of the greatest pagan temple in the world at that time. But in that shadow of one of the greatest wonders of the world, God was bringing together a new people, a new humanity, whose identity, which was once child of wrath, they now are children of God by the blood of the Lamb. And Paul needs them, he needs them to understand this identity. And that's why in Ephesians 2, as we look tonight, Paul points them back to who they once were. They must understand who they once were to understand the goodness of God and the gospel and how they now are to live it out, how they are to now respond to what God has done for them. So if you will turn to verse 1 of Ephesians 2, as Paul points back to their previous state. He says, and you he made alive, you he's given life to, who are dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. It's important that we never lose sight of who we once were. I'm sure you've heard that phrase before when people say, don't forget where you've come from. You kind of get that idea, that picture of that small town boy or girl who kind of makes it big in the world. And their parents or grandparents just say, don't forget where you've come from. And that's what Paul is pointing us back to, where we came from. And it's not a pretty picture. Literally, he says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And it's how we all once walked. He uses the verb walk throughout Ephesians. He uses it eight times in Ephesians. He uses it in his other letters too because Paul is concerned with how believers walk. But before he tells us how we ought to walk, he first points us back to how we once walked. He reminds us that we were walking after the course of this world. Outside of Christ, there's only one walk, and that is a walk that is in rebellion 
to God. Following literally after Satan is how he describes it here, saying that we were following after the prince of the power of the air. He's literally saying that, that we were walking after Satan. We were walking after his pattern. This is who we all once were. And none of us, none of us are excluded from this rebellious pattern of life. As we see in verse 3, Paul writes, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Paul here destroys any self-righteousness, any sense of self-righteousness that we may have, because he says we all, including himself among this call, that we all once walked in this pattern, in this course of life. We all were walking apart from Christ after Satan, living according to our own desires, and they were in rebellion to God. We were living for ourselves, carrying out our own desires. He says both bodily and in our mind. It's important that we understand a biblical view of sin. It's patterned after Satan, the deceiver and liar. But we are responsible for our sin. We can't just say, oh, the the devil made me do it and be off the hook for our sin. That's not the theology that the Bible puts forth. That's, That's not what Paul teaches us about sin. We're volitional beings, and our sin, though, it's, it's rooted in our desires. It, it's rooted in who we are. James makes this clear to us in James 1. James writes, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Paul understood exactly what James is writing in James 1, verses 14 through 15, that it's, our sin is rooted in our own desires. We were fulfilling the desires of our heart, and it wasn't pretty. The lives that we live as unbelievers before Christ was a life of sin and rebellion. And he talks about our nature, our, our identity, who we are. He says in the, the second half of Verse 3, he says that we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. I think it's important that we have a solid understanding of what nature is. Nature is defined as the essence of a thing, or the basic or inherent features of something. And so what Paul is saying is what was inherent to us, what our essence was, was child of wrath. That is who we once were as we were following after Satan, as we were children of wrath. And he says, like all of mankind, just as the others, our lot is no different than that lost and dying world before we encountered Christ through the gospel and were converted. Paul understood this in Romans as he's writing to the church in Rome. Romans 5, he puts us all in Adam. That understanding that all of us are born into Adam, all of us are born under sin, under condemnation even. And that's on the heels of him talking through Romans 1 through 3 as he begins to teach us that no one is righteous, no, not one, not even one of us seeks after God. He makes it abundantly clear that none of us were out there seeking after God. And it teaches us too, as as he says, that just as the others, this is the pattern of life of the world apart from Christ, chasing after the things of the world, chasing after the desires of this world. 
So we shouldn't be surprised when a lost and dying world acts like a lost and dying world. Because we need to be about teaching, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, that people would turn from their sins, that they, they would have new hearts. We need a heart change. We need to be preaching the gospel, because that's the only thing that will change people's hearts from child of wrath to child of God. But praise God that we find a solution in verse 4. As Paul spends those first three verses driving home that point of who we once were, we see God's, God's plan unfold. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us. If you want to have a robust view of God's grace, if you truly want to understand the love and mercy of God, you first have to understand that state of humanity that Paul pointed us to in those first three verses. You have to understand what theologians have termed total depravity. And Charles Hodge, I think, well defines total depravity. He, he writes this about it. By total depravity is not meant that all men are equally wicked, nor that any man is as thoroughly corrupt as it is possible for a man to be, nor that men are destitute of all moral virtues, but it is an entire absence of holiness. There is common to all men a total alienation of the soul from God, so that no unrenewed man either understands or seeks after God. No such man ever makes God his portion or God's glory the end of his being. The apostasy from God is total. All men worship and serve the creature rather than and more than the creator. That idea of, of total depravity highlights God's goodness as Paul begins to unfold what God has done in the gospel. It magnifies that statement as Paul says in verse 4, but God, but God. Living here in the Ohio Valley region, we're familiar with big shifts in weather. This was something that surprised myself and my wife as we moved out here, was how drastically the weather can change and how quickly it can do so. And so it would surprise us when there would be maybe a dark, dreary day, a rainy day, and then all of a sudden the light would burst forth. And it would be like a complete change in the weather as it would go from kind of that dark dreariness to a beautiful, sunny day where in a moment everything changes. And in our text, in those first three verses, we truly see the darkest of days for humanity. Truly, all hope is lost for humanity as we're following after Satan. But there's that big shift. The sun shines in, but God pro provides hope for humanity in those dark and dreary days as God's light shines into the darkness. Paul recognizes this massive shift as he begins to unpack what it means that what God has done in the gospel for children of wrath. God's mercy breaks in, and it's because he loves us. He writes in verse 4, who's rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us. God's mercy breaks in, and why does it do so? Because of God's abundant love, because of his grace and mercy. He chose to set his love upon us. And not because of our worthiness. Paul's made that abundantly clear in those first three verses. God set his love upon us not because of our inherent worthiness. 
not because of anything in ourselves. He makes that abundantly clear. In the midst of our depravity, God has done this. This is why in chapter 1, Paul can just burst forth in praise because of God's election. It's not in pride. It's in absolute humility. Because he recognizes that he was that man of Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. He recognizes that he was that man, bankrupt and in need of God's grace. And what does God do? He makes us alive in Christ. Verse 5, Paul writes, Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. When I read this verse, I think of Ezekiel chapter 37, where God brings Ezekiel to that valley of dry bones, that well-known passage. And God asks Ezekiel, Can these bones live, Ezekiel? And he answers wisely. He says, oh, God, you know, you know. And what does God do? God brings, breathes life into what was dead, brings life to those dead and dry bones. And that's a picture of what God has done for us, that we were dead in our sins without hope, but God breathed life into us, that he brought forth life from what was dead. And not only that, he gives us a new hope that we have a new hope. And we see that in verses 6 through 7 as we're given every spiritual blessing. Paul writes that we were raised up together and he made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. In Christ we have been given every spiritual blessing. And if he hasn't already made it clear enough, It's by grace that we've been saved. As he declares in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. That great doctrine of justification by faith. That we are to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ by repentance. That we are to turn from our life of sin and flee to Christ. The glorious God of this gospel the glorious work that he accomplishes by saving us. We are to respond in faith. And so I implore you, if there is anyone here tonight that is not trusting in that Savior, that is not trusting in Christ, flee to Christ. Turn from your sin. Repent and believe in him, for he is that wonderful God that causes children of wrath to be children of God because of his work on the cross, that he has reconciled us to himself. And even this is not of ourselves. Though we declare justification by faith, we recognize that even that faith was not something of ourselves. Instead, it was a free gift. It was the gift of God. We didn't earn it. So we dare not become prideful in it. We dare not boast in it. We can boast in what God has done, but there's nothing that makes us inherently choose God, that makes us seek after him except that he sought after us, that he caused our hearts to turn to him. And because of what he has done in Christ, we are now a new creation. He points to this in verse 10. He says that we are his workmanship, that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are a new creation because of what he has done. And we've been created for a purpose. 
that of good works. As I said, these flow out of those grand realities of the gospel that we would respond to that gospel with good works and that we would walk in those works that he has prepared for us, that not only does he prepare those works for us, but he empowers us to do them by the power of his spirit. He has prepared those works and he empowers us for those works in response to what God has done in Christ. And then the second half of this passage, verses 11 through 22, he points to this new creation identity. It's an identity that's not just individual. It's a corporate identity. That we have been saved to a corporate identity. In verse 11, he says, therefore. So in light of what I've just said, when you see a therefore in the text, it's pointing us back to what we have been looking at. Therefore, in light of these things, remember that you... Once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. So in light of who you once were, the life that you once lived, what God has done in Christ, in light of these things, remember, you once were separated from God. You once were separated from God, and he uses circumcision to remind them of that separation, as this was a primarily a Gentile audience, that physical reminder of their separation from God and his promises. And he says in verse 12 that at that time, you were without Christ. You were uncircumcised, you were without Christ, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You are outside of the promises of God. You are hopeless. You are without God. But we get another but in the text. But now, but now in verse 13, in Christ you have, in Jesus Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, some of you know that my wife, she's originally a South African. She's a South African citizen by birth. And when we got married, we were 22 years old, and we were so excited to go down to the immigration office and change her name to Amelia Castro. And I was excited. We're, we're young. We're 22. We're, you know, skipping down to that office, ready to change her name to Amelia Castro legally with the Office of Immigration. And we slipped that form that we had took time to fill out under, under the window, and the lady says, that'll be $395. And I'm 22 years old, and I think I would still be shocked by that now, but I was certainly very shocked then. And I said, $395 to change her name to Amelia Castro? And the lady says, well, you don't have to change your name. And that got me a little hot, I'm not going to lie. Um, but uh, I tried to respond calmly to that. And so we paid our $395 fee to change her name legally to Amelia Castro. And it caused me to recognize for the first time in my life the benefits I had of being a citizen. Because the rest of my life, I had never really thought about my citizenship as an American citizen. Until then, when I had a $395 fee to change a name for a legal document. Amelia was outside of the benefits that I had as a natural-born citizen. My natural birth gave me benefits that she was not afforded. And so Paul is saying that these Gentiles, they were outside of the promises of God. They were outside of those benefits, these Gentiles. They were alienated from the people of God, yet by the blood of the Lamb, they've been brought into the fold. They've been given citizenship, a full inheritance, a full portion. They have been brought in 
with all the full benefits. And unlike Amelia's citizenship, it didn't cost them anything. It didn't cost us anything. It was paid in full by Christ's work on the cross. The cost of his blood. He has brought us in. He has made us citizens in his kingdom. So you are an outsider yet. He has broken down this barrier of separation. We had a separation both from God and from his promises and even his people. He points us to that in verses 14 through 18. He says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, who has broken down that middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two thus making peace. The law stood against us, yet he abolished its penalty. Breaking down the law in which we stood condemned, he created one new people, one new man. Our reconciliation, it is vertical. It is most importantly a vertical reconciliation that God has reconciled us to himself through the gospel, through Christ's blood, but it's also horizontal. It's a horizontal reconciliation that we have been reconciled to one another in the people of God. That he has created one new people of God, one body. There is one people of God. Paul says in Romans that in Christ, all of us are children of Abraham. That though we were uncircumcised, as he talks about here, that that what was once uncircumcised is now circumcised in the heart. That he has brought us together in one body. Christ is clearly the head of this body, his bride. This body is the true church of Christ, those redeemed in Christ. And in verse 18, Paul writes, For for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. We now have full access to God by his spirit. And all of us have that same access if we are in Christ Jesus. And so he says, Now, therefore, in verse 19. So again, in light of these things, he gives us another therefore. In light of these things, now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Therefore, you now have citizenship that cost you nothing. We who are once alienated, we now have that full citizenship. We have been brought into that new household. This is our adoption. And we had a broken past. We had no hope. We were alienated. Yet he has adopted us, children of wrath, and he has adopted us as his children. He has given us full inheritance, full citizenship. He's given us full rights and privileges in his kingdom by the work of Christ, his blood, and by the power of his spirit. He has done this great work. And we all have that same foundation, he points us to in verse 20. He says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being that chief cornerstone. We are built on the apostolic message that's preserved in the word of God so that the people of God can know the one true and living God. Our daughter, Claire, she's three years old. And when we drive, she loves to listen to her children's Bible music. 
And so there's this one song that comes on that says, give me that old time religion. And it's, it's very funny to hear a three-year-old singing, give me that old time religion. But she loves to sing it. She said the other day it's her favorite song. And so she said, though, as we were driving home from church a couple weeks ago, Daddy, what does that mean, that old time religion? And I thought for a second, because I hadn't thought very deeply about that particular song, and it reminded me of Jude. As Jude calls them to contend for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. Because nothing has changed in the faith that we believe. That same letter that Paul penned to Ephesus, we preach today. That same gospel that he preached at the footsteps of the temple of Artemis, we still preach today. That has not changed. That apostolic message, the message handed down by the prophets and the apostles, we still teach in our Sunday schools, to our children, from our pulpits. Nothing has changed about the message that we preach. Yes, it's true that if you went to a church in 100 A.D., there probably are things that would look a lot different. Maybe the instruments, maybe the decor in the church. But in a very real way, nothing has changed. We should be preaching the same message that they were preaching. We still should be upholding that same doctrine, that same faith, and most importantly, that same Christ. So much so as we live out that apostolic message that has been handed down, that was once for all delivered to the saints. That is our foundation. That is the foundation of all believers is that message. And Christ is the cornerstone of that message. As Paul's closing out chapter 2, he writes, In whom the whole building, the whole building being fitted together. So this building with Christ as the cornerstone, the apostles and prophets as that foundation, that building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God the Spirit. We are all being built up together as the temple of the Lord, occupied by God himself. As the kingdom of God is expressed on earth by the church of Christ, who is knit together by the blood of the Lamb. Paul stresses the unity of the church in this book, and it's built upon the cosmic realities of Christ's work. He has taken what was literally dead, that child of wrath in those first three verses, and he's breathed life into us, his people. He has taken people who are not his people who were aliens, alienated from the promises of God, and he has brought us together as one people, as heirs of Christ. He's taken the uncircumcision in the flesh, and he's circumcised our hearts. He's broken down that dividing line, and he's made us one people, one body, one vine, the Bible describes us, one building, one temple, other ways we're described, one household, one bride, as he'll go on in chapter 5 to describe us, in, a, in, in that real sense, one true church. And this radical message of the gospel that Paul is preaching that changes children of wrath to children of God, that's the message that caused riots in Acts 19. Because it's a message that transforms a person. Transforms one so much that the people in Acts 19 who had turned from their ways of paganism and turned to Christ, they come together, those that were practicing magic, and they burn their books of magic in Acts 19. 
And Luke even notates the sum. The Bible provides details at particular times so that we can take note of things. And Luke chooses to write that they threw those books of magic and burned them, and it was 50,000 pieces of silver. 50,000 pieces of silver because the gospel was at work at the footsteps of one of the greatest wonders of the world. One of those seven wonders of the world, that great temple of Artemis, that so-called great temple of Artemis. This was all happening at the footsteps of that temple as the gospel is transforming people's hearts in Ephesus. That is the hope of a nation, that is the hope of the world, and more particularly, that is the individual hope of a child of wrath, that we would preach that gospel. That radical message should be the message that we are out there preaching, the message that will change that child of wrath to a child of God. And this has massive impact on the believer as we come to grips with our new identity. The more that we remember our old identity, as Paul did in verses 1 through 3, it only causes us to praise God even more, to appreciate his grace, his love, his mercy even more. As we remember who we once were and what he has done in Christ, we can only behold our God and praise him because of the transformation that he has done. And it's not just an individual transformation. It's that horizontal transformation that he has created one people of God, that corporate identity that we have, that fellowship that we have because he has broken down that barrier. So we must embrace an accurate understanding of man, of our own selves, because it does affect how we preach how we preach the gospel, how we share the gospel. It affects how we disciple people as we realize that sanctification is ongoing. That for the believer, it is a continual work by the power of God as they put off that old self, that child of wrath, and put on the new, as we'll see later in Ephesians. That all of the go-dos, the imperatives that he will tell us later in Ephesians They rest on the fact that we understand our identity, that we understand who we are and what God has done, and that we go do in light of what he has already done. It affects how we raise our families, how we train up our children, how we understand who they are first in Adam. And we pray and we teach so that they would understand Christ and be in him. But it affects how we raise our children how we help raise our grandchildren, how we challenge others in the faith, ultimately how we live out our Christian life. And so let us never fail to understand both our past identity, but most importantly, let us behold more and more our new identity in Christ and what he has done. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the glories of the gospel, that children of wrath can cry out in praise because from turning to you, Lord, you have made us children of God by the blood of the Lamb. Father, help us to behold the realities of the gospel more and more. Help us to respond by living a life of faithfulness to you. Help us to live a life that honors and glorifies your name because we are in awe of what you have done for us. And help us to live out our life, our corporate identity in Christ because we understand that horizontal reconciliation that has been wrought out because of the vertical reconciliation you have made with us. Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name.